This morning, uh, we are beginning our study, our series in Advent. This morning, we're going to look at the idea of hope, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to explore through peace, joy, love, and then finally on the 24th, we're going to land at our study of Christ. Advent has within it kind of this eager expectation and in, in the building up of what it would have been like to have this expectation of the Messiah and for us as where we are, this expectation, this eager awaiting of our Lord, our, our, our Messiah, our Savior's second coming. And so today we are, um, providentially God has for us an opportunity to consider what hope is and where we might place our hope. Considering uh, hope and, and just thinking of different things I'd read, and I, I came across uh, a book called Endurance. Now, Endurance tells the tale of a group of uh, intrepid explorers around the turn of the 20th century, led by a, na- a man named Ernest Shackleford, or Shackleton rather. And Shackleton leads these men down to Antarctica. And he leaves about 1915, and they're headed down there. And when they make it down to Antarctica, uh, they realize pretty quickly that they've made a pretty serious error in calculation, and the ice is beginning to close around their ship. And so they try for a number of days to break free from the ice because this is not the place where they needed to stop. If they stop here, they're never going to make it to their supply point. If they don't make it to their supply point, there's a pretty good chance that they're not going to make it at all. And so they did everything they possibly could Uh, for the 28 of them to make it out of this but in the midst of all these things with no way to signal the outside world with no expected check-in points in the midst of all of these things when they considered what all of the things stacked against against them this is what they said of all their enemies the cold the ice the sea he feared none more than demoralization the absence of hope Now, the hope that they had would have to sustain them for the two years that they were stranded in Antarctica before Shackleton was able to make it out in this makeshift raft and then come back for some of the other men. Two years stuck in one of the most desolate places on God's earth. Two years recognizing the importance of having something to put our hope in, to have something to put our expectation in. So this highlights for us the importance of hope. And we have hope for any number of things. We had been out of town for the last week and we uh, came back in, we turned on the television and the Aggies were losing 31 to nothing. And my son said, dad, they can still come back. And I said, I'm sorry I've led you to this. I feel like I failed you somehow. Uh, this last week, I, uh, my second for the second time in about six months, my phone took a swim. And uh, this time I recovered it uh, remarkably from the washing machine. And so my hope was set on, please just work. I don't want to spend this money all over again for a stupid thing that, that rings and whatever. So I set my hope and so I'm researching and all these things and remarkably uh, it, it, it worked. And so I, I set my hope on something trivial. He set his hope on something ludicrous unfortunately. Last Saturday, uh, so a week from yesterday, uh, I get a call that my uncle, my dad's oldest brother, is in ICU. He's in the, in the hospital over in Shreveport. 
And so I was told that, look, if you want to see him, if you want to be with him before he dies, you need to go talk to him. And so I knew that I'd likely play a role in his funeral, which, which was yesterday. And so I went over and I had an hour, uh, just the two of us, to sit and to talk with him, to hear his heart and to hear his life experiences and to hear what hope he had and to hear what sorrows he had. And in the midst of this, and in the midst of recognizing that, that he wasn't going to live a whole lot longer, he had all of his hope pent up. He said, I just want to go home. I don't want to die in the hospital. I want to go home. I, w- I want to be in my son's house. I want to be gathered around family. I don't want to die in the hospital. And as we talked and as we journeyed through this conversation of sorrows and disappointments and difficulties over the course of his life, he knew that he was never leaving that hospital. He knew that, that, that he would never once again return to his son's home. But in all these things, he was able to maintain hope. Because his hope didn't ultimately rest on getting to go back to his son's house. His hope rested on God and his goodness through the salvation afforded to him and earned him by his son Jesus. He had made his way through the temporary hope and expectation of being able to go back to his hometown and had set his hope on something unfailing, something enduring, something lasting. And that's the hope we need. Not hope just to help us make it through, not hope just to help us suffer through the difficulties, but a hope that endures, a hope that lasts. And I think that we get a picture of this hope in Psalm 33. Within Psalm 33, uh, there are a number of different things communicated. Now, we're not going to go through the the whole psalm. We're going to look at the first five verses, and we're going to the last uh, four or five verses. But let me me read the first five verses for us, and we'll take a, a look at them. The psalmist writes and says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so verses one through three represent the command, the instruction that we're told to abide in. And so this should be what we do. This should be kind of the manner of our life. This should be how we exist. This should be the ebb and flow of how we are. Praise the Lord. And he has all these various ways of describing it. He says, shout for joy that we would be caught up and so overcome with the desire to praise him that it would just echo with shouts. There's, there's no reservation. There's no modicum of, of decorum and just kind of, well, just very casually, if you'd lightly raise your voice, maybe a small hand raise. No, like, he just kind of captivates us and invites us in here and invites us into this bold declaration and says, shout. And so when I think of shouts, I think of Justin having a quiet conversation. And so he says, shout for joy to the Lord. He invites the righteous to, to come into this. And look what he says, praise befits the upright. It, it, it's as, as if God says, this is what the righteous wear. This is what the upright wear. They have dressed themselves, they have outfitted themselves in the praise of God. This is the dress code for the Christian to be dressed out in praise of our king. There's no other way for us. There's no other appropriate response for us. To know him is to praise him. To praise him is a recognition that we are his child. 
He says, give thanks to the Lord. He mentions all these various things with the, with the lyre, with a harp of ten strings. And then he invites us to greater experiences of this God. He says, sing of him a, a new song. It's the idea that as we go through life, as we encounter difficulties, as we encounter joys and celebrations, that all of these things represent a greater opportunity to know him and in knowing him to respond to him in praise. And so what he writes, he says, sing to him a new song. He's not saying, look, go to your study, Carol, get alone and just write out all the adjectives and all these things. Go into synonyms.com and, and just write glorious and then be like, glorious, good, gooder, gooder, better, best. You know, so he's saying, in the midst of your life, and your life is filled with good things and bad things, right? So the Christian's life is not this, this repeated succession of good and better and best, but the Christian's life, in a very real sense, follows the same pattern of everyone else's life, because we all experience the same world, albeit through a different lens. So we have joys and we have sorrows. And in all of these things, we have opportunity to praise the Lord. So then in 4 through 19, it begins to give us the reasons why, all the various reasons why we should be caught up in praising the Lord. But he gives a summary of these things in 4 and 5. So let's just look at 4 and 5 and consider the summary that they relate to, and you can look these up later. In verse 4, in the first part, he says, for the word of the Lord is upright. God's word is righteous, and this relates to verses 6 through 9. One of the reasons we can praise God is because his word is faithful and true. His word is faithful and true, and so those things we encounter in life, we find relating or find correlation to them in his word, which is, testifies to his greatness, his goodness, his faithfulness. It goes on, it says, all his works are done in faithfulness. And this correlates to verses 10 through 12. All those things that we see God busily at work at in our experience, in his creation, testify to his faithfulness, that he is completely unfailing. That although people will fail us and will do so at a breakneck pace, that we will fail ourselves, that we will fail those around us. We serve, we are saved, and we know a God who is faithful. He's the very definition of faithful and displays faithfulness in all that he does and all that he says. First part of verse 5 says, he loves righteousness and justice. He is a righteous God, and this correlates to verses 13 through 15. We see all kinds of ways where we or our society or those around us pervert and work against God's righteousness, which work against and seeks to subvert his justice. But our knowledge of God as revealed in his word, as experienced in our lives, leads us to this understanding that he himself is righteous and just. And then lastly, and this is what we'll look at in 16 through 19, the earth is full of the steadfast, this covenant faithful love of God. It's full of it. Everywhere God is revealing himself to be faithful and true. Everywhere God is revealing himself to be true to the promises that he's revealed to us in his word. But everywhere we find ourselves seeking in some sense to short circuit this process that God has given us. To find a loophole or a uh, workaround to it. Look what he writes in 16 and 17. 
He says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by, it, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So as they would have sat there and, and thought about what this looks like and how this operates, the king's rule, the king's reign, was, was understand, understood to be without the ability to withstand. And if you could, in fact, withstand the king's rule, withstand the king's might, it would point to his weakness, to his inability. But frequently, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read in our, our student of history, you'll find that oftentimes the king engages in hubris. This understanding and this belief that they're not as strong as they think they are, that they think they're impenetrable, that they think that they're high and mighty, that they think they're not able to be overcome, their armies aren't able to be defeated. But again, history shows us, and the Bible reports to us, that these things are quite simply not true. But still, the king invites, finds himself stepping into this reality, thinking that I'll just be saved by my army, or the strong and the mighty man, he'll just be saved in his strength. And it's at that moment, right before his strength fails, right before it falls. Now, around the time of this writing, if they were to think of the single greatest uh, weapon in their arsenal, frequently their minds would have gone to this war horse. And, and the war horse isn't just this prancing pony that you take your kids on to uh, to a ride right and so some of us have this kind of benign understanding of what a horse is it's this kind of trail horse where it doesn't matter who you put on there from a sack of taters to a you know 300 pound uh, man to whatever it is he's going to walk the same trail he's not going to run he's not going to buck He's not going to turn to the left when he's supposed to turn to the right. He's not going to turn to the right when he's supposed to turn to the left. He's not going to stop when he's supposed to go. And he's certainly not going to go when he's supposed to stop. He just kind of mindlessly goes through the paces. And this is what a lot of our experiences with horses are. But when he writes this idea of the war horse, just think like the horse of hell. Like fire coming out of its uh, nostrils, you know, pawing at the ground, biting. I mean, this thing is just fierce and to be feared. And so when he describes this, and they would say, are you afraid of the war horse charging at you? And you're standing there holding this little spear. You say, well, I'm not an idiot. Of course I'm scared. Of course I'm afraid of this thing. And he says, this thing will fail. It is no reason to place hope. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, so even though it is strong, even though it is able, it cannot save you. Just think about all the various things that you and I place hope in. Now, certainly, if we were to spend here uh, some considerable amount of time, we would find that many of us place hopes in political systems. Then I want to elect somebody that represents my worldview, that's going to make the world how I want it to be. And repeatedly, throughout the course of history, we're confounded when this doesn't work out the way we thought it would. Why I, I, I elected this man, I elected this woman. If I could just be perfectly honest, I'm just really disappointed with how they're serving. And then the next election rolls around and you set your mind, you're like, we're going to elect this man, we're going to elect this woman, and they're going to make the world the way it should be. And they get in office, and then lo and behold, six, seven months later, you're thinking, they're just not doing what they said they would do. And then the same pattern repeats over and over and over again. We are the fool going back to eat the vomit we spit up. We believe in this, and we think that this thing will affect our ultimate hope. And it won't, regardless of who's elected. 
And in this understanding, we, we misunderstand the sovereignty of God and his movement in this, that he is sovereignly in control of all. And in so much as he's that, we have hope. Not in a political system, not in an elected official, but we have ultimate, unassailable hope in a God who does not fail. Not a politician who will say something to get elected and then thank you for your vote and do whatever they wanted to do in the first place. It's this understanding that the Lord is faithful. Now, some of us, the way we have hope is simply just by ignoring those things around us. We think that things are going bad, and, and so the approach that we've taken to engendering, to maintaining our hope, to maintaining somebody of a bright future for ourselves is merely just ignoring those things around us. And so somebody comes up and says, friend, do you not see that your house is on fire? And you're like, not my house. It's not such a big deal. I'm just going to ignore it, and it's not going to be such a big deal. What well, is your, your wife and family are in there. <coughs> and so all these various things that we might encounter, do you realize you're making compounding bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and you just choose to ignore it, thinking somehow ignoring all of these things is going to preserve, to keep this hope that you have. Ignoring problems doesn't make them go away, doesn't help them get better. It just creates a bigger mess for somebody else to help you clean up. Ignoring hope doesn't work. Some of us, our hope rests in our self-sufficiency. So we see all the things crashing in around us, all the difficulties we're faced with, and we say, if I can just marshal enough intestinal fortitude, if I can just marshal enough of my own ability, if I can just kind of bring all that I am to bear on this problem, then I can make, it, then I can make my way through it. Your self-sufficiency will fail. You'll find yourself incredibly disappointed in your own uh, ability in its weakness. I can tell you last Saturday as I sat with my uncle, he went over and over again, this well-crafted plan he had to be able to come home, and he believed that it was true. Even though the doctors and the nurses kept saying, we, we, we can't send you home this way. You would not survive the trip home. His relative indifference to their professional opinion was incredibly well displayed and slightly profane. You see, he saw in himself this ability to overcome, and many of us recognize falsely that we have the ability to overcome. But we see over and over again the mandates of Scripture, its instruction calls us to this ready recognition that we are weak and that we are broken and we are in desperate need of something so far beyond ourselves. And so we fail to have a real and lasting hope because our hope has been entrusted and been implanted into us. So God calls us to expand our understanding of what hope is, to expand our understanding of how hope can be realized. Jeremiah, writing at a particularly difficult time in Lamentations, is kind of just decrying all the various things that have happened to him and how awful life is and how miserable all these various things are. Look at some of the glowing languages, uh, language he uses here, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, He has made my teeth to grind on gravel and made me to cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have no peace. I have no, no comfort. I've forgotten what happiness is, and so I say my endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah prizes, he looks at his situation, he looks at the predicament that he's in, and he's not seeking to make it 
better by wishful thinking. The reality of the situation, the predicament he found himself in, found himself in was such that he could say that, that hope is gone, my endurance has perished. He says, remembering my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Jeremiah maybe describes a situation that some of us find ourselves in today. Through sickness, through difficulty, through pain, through loss, through absence within our families. Listen to the turn that he offers in verse 21. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, Jeremiah's hope didn't rest on his situation fundamentally getting better. His hope rested on who God testified to be. If your hope in any situation rests on coming out the other side of it unscathed, or just saying, man, I can handle anything for a short amount of time, or the this too shall pass understanding. That's not a hope. That's something completely unsettling. That's something that will rock you to the core of who you are, but who God is doesn't change in the midst of our difficulties. It does not change in the midst of our woes, in the midst of our sorrows. The psalmist goes on in, in verse 18, and he said, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And so he's bringing into this understanding that God looks into the midst of your sorrows and he sees where you are. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who knows you more than you could ever possibly know yourself, sees you in the midst of your struggles and he is intimately acquainted with them. And what is he doing there? He says that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. God's purposes are working for his good pleasure. And your life is caught up in the midst of this. God is preserving you. He is carrying you. And he is one who is worthy of setting your hope and setting your expectation. And so he calls us to align ourselves and our hearts with him in verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In the midst of difficulties in life, there, there's, there's a person or there's a situation often that we think of, man, if just they would show up or just this would happen, whew, I could breathe easy and things would be so much better for me. I, 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 if I could just make it through this, if so-and-so would just spell me some relief, if I could just get this raised, then I wouldn't have to worry about the financial burden that I'm in. If, if, if the people around me would just quit making bad decisions that are adversely affecting me, things would be okay. If I could just make it over this next hump. But what does he call us to? He calls us onto the patient, eager expectation of God's deliverance. And for the Christian, that doesn't look like overcoming the difficulty that you're currently experiencing. For the Christian, that looks like greater faithfulness and entrusting ourselves in increasing measure to the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord. It's a difficult thing to internalize. 
I've always found that, that truths like this are much easier to anticipate in the good days of life and in the abstractions on paper than they are to experience in the incredible difficulties of losing a family member, of, of suffering sickness, of suffering loss. But it's our experience of them in the abstraction and in his word that prepares our hearts to journey through the valleys of desperation. So our soul waits for the Lord. Verse 21, why? Because our heart is glad in him because we trust his holy name. In, some, in the midst of the suffering and sorrow of your life, there is gladness to be had in fellowship with God. Some of the reasons we as Christians suffer so much is because in the midst of our sufferings and our difficulties, we place our hopes in the same places that our lost friends and family do. And it's back to the same cycle of I can muddle through, I can make it through, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. For the Christian, there is able to be had gladness in the midst of sorrow because we recognize that all sorrow is purposed and God is carrying us in the midst of this. And sometimes our sorrow will break us. It'll break the people closest to us. And it's this incredibly difficult notion to wrap our minds around, and I don't think we can ever perfect this understanding and this knowledge that God is loving in the midst of our sorrow, that he is loving us in the midst of our difficulty. So he calls us to this prayer as he concludes the psalm. He says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Our prayer and our experience leads us to this understanding that we are insufficient on our own. We have no great cause of hope for ourselves, and no one should put their great hope in us. But we serve a God who is able to sustain our hope because he himself is our hope. Matthew, writing or recording rather, quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Matthew chapter 12, Verses 18 through 21 said this of Jesus. He said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will hope. The eager hope of expectation finds it the realization in Jesus. Today, there is cause for rejoicing. Today, there is cause for hope in Christ and in Christ alone. John writes to a community wrangling and really struggling with the idea of how do I get rid of sin and, 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 and what does this look like in the life of the Christian? And in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Today, where you are struggling in the midst of your difficulties, and some of us are there on the basis of our sin. We are suffering the consequences of our sin in active rebellion and active disbelief against a holy God. And there's good news for you. You are able to take hope in the fact that you have a mighty advocate. 
You have one that stands in the presence of God and who openly advocates for you, goes to the Father on your behalf. In the midst of our sin, he says, don't look at their sin, see me, see my atoning work. As John goes on, he's speaking of Jesus and says, he is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the whole world. And there is a hope that endures. There is a hope for today, a hope for tomorrow, and for all days. And that hope is found in the person of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us opportunity to find hope in the person of Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us not to give ourselves to hoping in ourselves, in our circumstances, hoping even in the fleeting nature of our lives. Uh, we whose lives are but a mist and a vapor are able to place our hope and trust in Christ, the rock, the steadfast one. So God, I pray that you would guide us as we take the supper together. Help us to reflect on the goodness of Jesus, his enduring sacrifice and catch us in the midst of our act of renewal as we remember his sacrifice and as we look to his coming again god would you guide us in this time would you bless us in this exercise we submit these things to you in christ's name amen let me ask the deacons to come forward and